Are you an HR department of one trying to figure out how to balance task and strategy while keeping up with changes in regulatory compliance? Do you need a fresh outlook on old topics? Then stop what you're doing, grab your coffee, and get ready to recharge. If you have people, you have problems to solve and things to do. Your host is Brenda Neckvottle, a 20-year human resource professional, ready to explore the HR industry with veterans of business and life with fresh eyes and new ideas. Learn about the rapidly evolving changes in employment law around the country, as well as new tactics to deploy and build engagement in your workforce. If you're looking to implement new practices to make your job easier in HR, then this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Best Practices in Human Resources podcast. Excited to have you guys here for yet another really awesome episode. If you are joining for the first time, welcome. I'm so happy that you're here. And if you are tuning in again and have been tuning in regularly, thank you so much. Seriously. I really want to thank you for for just following along. You've you've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> this is 66 episodes, and uh, got a whole. Actually, you're starting to uh, set up programming for next year already, if you can believe it. So, just I don't know. It feels like the first first third of this year hasn't happened, but it feels like the first third of this year has been two thirds of the year, if that makes sense. But it's been crazy. So I'm here to help share with you the what and the how in human resources because I'm in the human business and that means that there's a greater number of dynamics in the workforce to balance and manage. But most importantly today, we're going to be talking about employment law changes across the nation and I'm going to share with you a little bit later where in the show you can access these plus a lot of other resources as well. Um, Our main topic today is returning them to work with Dane Stephenson, who is an attorney and um, pretty interesting conversation. He's got a lot of really, really great information. And he comes from a Department of Labor background where he's worked over there for 16 years. Um, Initially, this episode, believe it or not, was going to be talking about um, how to survive a Department of Labor audit. But everything that we've been talking about with the coronavirus, we got into this conversation. I said, you know, let's, let's shift this up. Let's, let's, let's really focus in on what people are, are, really needing to talk about today. So that's pretty awesome stuff. We got some upcoming events and I'm going to talk to you about how you can get my best practices delivered directly to your inbox. So before we uh, begin folks, the information that is available through this podcast is for informational purposes only and not for the purpose of providing any form of legal advice. You should contact your attorney to obtain legal advice with respects to any particular issue. If you do not have an employment attorney, go ahead and reach out to me and I may be able to go ahead and refer one to you through our affiliates and our friends over at Jackson Lewis. Okay, so yay, fun stuff. Employment law changes across the nation. So there's some information out that the OCR, which stands for the Office of Civil Rights uh, and the Department of Health and Human Services, the OCR has relaxed enforcement of HIPAA during the COVID-19 and that actually helps pave the way for an increase in telehealth services. Really interesting article. It doesn't mean that HIPAA is not being adhered to. It still is. It's just the government recognizes that there is an opportunity. We just got to soften up on a few things. Uh, The Affordable Care Act no longer is interpreted in the same way to prohibit discrimination against transgender patients. That's a new rollout. 
as a result of uh, the major, major, major LGBTQ uh, decision that came down last week from the Supreme Court ruling that you are no longer able to go ahead and discriminate of anybody in the L that it falls under LGBTQ uh, classification. So we've got an article up there as well. Posted an article called The EEOC Takes on Antibody Testing and Returning Older and Pregnant Workers Post-COVID-19. Pretty interesting um, article reading out there as well. Over in California, minimum wage increases are still coming in July, so get ready. 2020, they're on their way. Uh, Non-compete news. <clears throat> We've got uh, over in Georgia some no-hire provisions under the Georgia Restricted Covenants Act. So there's some new developments taking place over there. Over in Louisiana, uh, Louisiana has, expands, has expanded access to the medical marijuana. And Minneapolis has won the battle over sick and safe time ordinances over there. Virginia has released a new pay transparency law. And over in Seattle, uh, they have enacted a gig worker paid sick and time safe ordinance during the COVID-19 crisis. So if you guys would like to go ahead and read these articles and these things that I'm calling out, you're welcome to do so. If you go to bestpractices.org, click on the podcast link and scroll down, you'll be able to actually click these on. Now, I also have a ton of articles that I get on a regular basis. There's a lot more. Um, I actually load those up onto our member resource site and I'm going to share with you where that is. It's a it's an awesome site, very affordable. It's only nine dollars a month, and uh, it's it's literally loaded loaded with current relevant information for you guys. So hang on to the back third of this episode, and uh, we're going to get that information over to you. So today we've got Dane Stephenson, <clears throat> who's joining us this week. And last week I shared, uh, if you've been following along, I shared some information and I wanted to repeat this. So he's an employment attorney and like I said, former Department of Labor specialist. Um, he sent me an update on where we stand with the COVID-19 related lawsuits that have been filed. And I wanted to just repeat this because this is going to help kind of set some context into place as we get into the subject matter that we're talking about in the next segment. So since March 17th, there have been 178 lawsuits filed against employers due to the alleged labor employment violations related to the coronavirus. Now, filings have increased rapidly over the past few months, and here is the breakdown. Eight complaints from March 17th through the 31st, 48 complaints in April, 99 complaints in May, and 23 complaints within the first five days of June. Florida is presently leading the way with 21 cases filed, New Jersey at 19, California 18, Texas at 14, New York and Pennsylvania 13 following close behind all of the other states. Now the most common complaints have focused on retaliation, which is a total of 53, breach of contract including wrongful termination, termination which is at 38, workplace safety is ringing in at 36, and wage an hour is at 30. In addition, there are two unfair labor practice charges that have been filed with the National Labor Relations Board. So yeah, it's getting busy out there and this is perfect timing for us to go ahead and start talking about that. So hang in there. We're gonna get that information to you real soon. There are approximately 2,500 members of the U.S. Special Operations Community who transition out of active duty military service every single year. The Honor Foundation's dedicated its mission to serving these elite individuals on their journey to prepare for life once they take off the uniform. 
In the past few years, we've begun our own journey to reach this number, launching three physical campuses in San Diego, California, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and near Wilmington, North Carolina, along with a virtual campus to reach members of the community anywhere on the planet. I spent 26 years in the Special Operations community as a SEAL. I graduated from THS program, I served on the board of directors, and now I'm proud to lead this organization into the future to continue assisting these transitioning service members and their families. Our dedicated team, our world-class program, and our incredible tribes of supporters are standing by to help THF alumni and future fellows, and are committed to providing the best possible support system and resources to better serve this community. Our vision for the Honor Foundation is clear, to impact every transitioning service member from the U.S. Special Operations Enterprise through our programs and support and to be a catalyst for overhauling the entire DOD transition program. It's a big task, but the community deserves it, and we're driving full steam ahead to make this a reality. If you've been inspired with what the Honor Foundation's done in the last five years, I welcome you all to join us as we craft the next chapter in defining what it means to serve others with honor for life. Today we've got Dane Stephenson on the line and he is an attorney, he's an employment attorney who has been dealing with all of this <laughs> with the rest of us and um, he's decided to join us today because we've been, we've been talking about, we've been wanting to get him on for a little bit but what we started talking about was we've kind of been bouncing all over the place because as everybody's been experiencing it's all changing. So today we decided to talk about returning them to work, <laughs> returning everybody to work. So first, well, first off, welcome. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Brenda. You're welcome. It's great to have you here. So do you want to share a little bit about who you are and your background and what it is that you do? Sure. I am currently at Littler Mendelssohn. It's the largest labor and employment firm in the world. But I only uh, arrived there in January. Uh, that was after 17 and a half years at the Department of Labor, prosecuting OSHA, Wage and Hour, ERISA, and other employment um, litigation matters for the various enforcement agencies within the Department of Labor. So I've gone from prosecuting the companies to representing them at this point. Uh, so at Littler, I still focus on OSHA issues, as well as wage and hour, some ERISA and whistleblower. But, you know, having arrived there in late January, it was only six, seven weeks before the pandemic hit. So with my, particularly with my wage and hour and OSHA background, I was pulled on very early on to the Littler COVID-19 task force, which started out with 30 attorneys, cross-discipline, areas to try and help employers through what was a disaster, you know, just craziness at the beginning, still feels like it, but we've moved from having to uh, help employers with getting their employees out of the workplace to, to currently helping them how to get them back into the workplace. So it's been a very interesting few months for me in private practice. Yeah, it's it's calming down to a more normal level of crazy <laughs> versus <laughs> versus insanity. <laughs> yeah. 
So <laughs> it's scary. It's scary to think that this is, this sort of feels normal. But you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a better way of putting it is it's finally feeling like it's leveling off a little bit. I mean, you know, this, the country's starting to open back up again, and you know, states are getting a better grip on what it is that they're going to be doing. Employers are not, you know, for a while everybody was in this reactionary. I don't want to say panic. That's not the right word, but it was this reactionary crisis mode. You know, <clears throat> now we're now we're kind of in the process of turning things back around again, which is which is really great. And um, a lot of people are still very concerned with the fact that you know could we have another flare up in the country? And you know, quite honestly, it's like you know the more people are out and about, it's very possible that you know our immune systems are capable of you know, developing the antibodies to be able to keep us safe. And let's, let's hope that that's the case and we don't have to take a step back again like what we did before. One of the things that I saw a lot of, <clears throat> and yes, there's there are certain things in what it is that we do as HR pros where the government has kind of, re- has, you know, lessened or released or they're not as tight, some of the regulations that we've seen before. Like one of them, for instance, was with the I-9 forms is that since you can't produce an, a document face-to-face in order to complete a, an I-9 if you're onboarding somebody remotely that um, USCIS went ahead and gave permission to go ahead and actually do the verification piece, the ballot, you know, reviewing of the documents, you know, electronically and being able to do it digitally in some format. <clears throat> But what a lot of people are saying is like, okay, well, they're releasing, you know, they're, they're loosening all of these laws and I'm, I'm sure that we don't have to pay attention. You know, it's like, I'm sure it's okay if we do this. I'm like, no, <laughs> the laws are the laws. Nobody's, nobody's loosening anything. You still have to do what you need to do, you know, for time and attendance and with your background, I, you know, just out of curiosity, um, coming from where you, where you come from and knowing how you know the department, how likely is it that the Department of Labor or an WHD would actually be able to go after companies who have like really violated? And, and I'm, I'm sure it's high, but I'm just, I'd love to hear it from somebody who's been in those walls for as long as you have. This is, they, I, I'm not sure if you're asking like how, how can they right now under the pandemic? I mean, there's no question that enforcement has ramped up significantly. And even yeah. in the last week, we are, I have a lot of wage and hour and OSHA investigations going on. And all of a sudden, particularly OSHA is showing back up on site this week. Yeah. Uh, wage and hour, wage and hour is still doing everything remotely, but they, they've been pushing along through this whole pandemic. Uh, even opening brand new investigations, but doing it entirely remotely. The bigger challenge in particularly in certain states is that the DOL is only half as scary as the private attorneys with a class action. So all of the various potential problems that this pandemic has caused for employers and forced employers, as you said, to just be reactionary, that that reactionary conduct in many cases has wound up um, creating a situation where private plaintiffs or the DOL will have an opportunity to come back at those employers. And it can be really, really costly. Mm-hmm. So to your point, do you still have to comply and 
oh, geez, we did our best during this time. Like, we just had to close our doors. We had no money to make that final paycheck run. Right. Or, or like outside salespeople. Well, our outside salespeople who we thought were exempt, uh, it's not our fault that they couldn't be outside anymore to make those sales. We're doing the best we can. But at the end of the day, if those outside salespeople are not actually outside, you've almost certainly lost your exemption. And so have you started keeping track of those hours mm-hmm. uh, for those people under the record keeping provisions? And do you know whether they've worked any overtime or not? There's a slew of problems yeah. uh, that certainly employers, not employers fault, not stuff that employers are really going to think about uh, because they have done the best they, they can through this. But at the end of the day, as you said, the law is the law, and yep. as things settle down, the plaintiff's attorneys will come out, and DOL, if they're investigating, is still going to apply the law as it existed before the pandemic. Where do you see the biggest, I mean, you know, this whole thing has never been litigated before. This is brand new for everybody. Where do you see litigation the likelihood of litigation taking place in what aspect of this whole COVID-19 thing? There is uh, an endless <laughs> list. <laughs> I should say, what's the most likely to come first? <laughs> yeah, well, we've already seen the, the cases against Walmart and some cases against other retailers. We've seen uh, for, for both allegedly not protecting clients or employees uh, as well as they should. We've seen claims that uh, suggesting that employers or uh, retailers have violated the Americans with Disability Act. Mm-hmm. We've had litigation over the healthcare aspect, uh, both with Workman's Comp has already started. Keep, um, there's certain there's such a patchwork of laws that are being implemented and have been implemented in such a haphazard manner because it's all being done in such short order. But you know, you get I think there was 18 states that were that have passed some version of a presumption that if you don't have if you can't figure out how your employee contracted the virus, then there should be a presumption that it's from the workplace. So not, not shockingly, California has that strongest uh, law, but there's other variations of it. And, and that sort of permeates through the whole um, employment process, because if you have that presumption uh, in workman's comp, then you've also got it potentially for OSHA, your OSHA reporting on your OSHA logs. And and civil suits will latch onto that law in terms of the fact that if there's if the employer or the retailer can't prove that somebody got it somewhere else, then uh, and and there's a known COVID positive person in your workplace. Yeah. Anyone who was exposed to that person can claim that there was a presumption that that's where they contracted it. 
So it's messy. <laughs> it is very messy. And so is the process of bringing people back, <laughs> as you and I were talking about. So what are you seeing as far as some of the challenges go from, you know, from your vantage point, bringing employees back to work? What are some of the big obstacles that you've been, you know, very diligent to help people kind of get through and overcome? So Littler Mendelssohn, the law, the law firm, they did a survey that over a thousand clients, the in-house lawyers at large companies responded to, and their responses were that um, about 80, 78% were planning to reopen within three months, 35% are planning to reopen within 35 months. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know if this is surprising, but it's good to know that uh, like 90% of them understand that they will have significantly increased cleaning and sanitizing when they get there. Big numbers, like 87% know that they've got to rearrange their workspaces to limit uh, interactions so that you can increase social distancing. Hmm. About 80% all plan to do verification and various types of screening as employees walk in to the, the workplace. Uh, 58% said they were going to do some sort of actual testing. So whether it's at least temperature checks, uh, but many of them are thinking about actual viral tests and a much smaller percentage, but it's out there and uh, uh, are thinking about antigen and antibody testing. As that technology improves, we're very likely to see more of that. But I think the biggest challenge is, um, actually, I said this to a group the other day, is I I saw a plan for one of the tallest office buildings in New York the other day, their reopening plan, and it was 60 pages long. Mm-hmm. Just to cover all the aspects of what was going to happen in that big building uh, for their tenants, and what they had to do prior to reopening the building, and then as people were coming in, how they were going to handle just all the different aspects related to COVID. So it's a it's a major undertaking, and all of the almost all the OSHA guidance and some of the CDC guidance that's come out has made pretty clear that what the government is expecting from employers is that they have a real plan and preferably a written plan in place that sort of addresses how they plan to control or prevent the virus from exposures to the virus in their workplace, Mm -hmm. and then how they're going to prepare when and if uh, an exposure occurs. So that process starts before people ever come back into the the workplace. So you got to look at the workplace and determine things like how many entrances and exits do we have? Are the places where our people work, whether it's on an assembly line or at desks, are they properly distanced or what, how do we have to change our business to try and make these people create more space between them? And then what are you going to do with lunch rooms? and bathrooms mm-hmm. to try and to try and ensure that when people are 
in those common common areas that they're not close to each other and that they're not spreading the virus. So that uh, I, I think it's 80, almost 90% of people that responded to that survey said that they plan to ha require all of their employees to wear masks when they're in common spaces. And that's certainly in a lot of states and localities you're required to do it when you walk out of your house. The CDC has said anytime you're going to be out and about and there's a potential that you're going to be within six feet of somebody, you should be wearing a face mask. Yeah. And the face mask, the face mask is, is not there to protect the person who's wearing it. And it's not even considered PPE by OSHA or anybody else. So in terms of, you don't, like an employer doesn't necessarily have to pay for that as PPE. It, it would be considered, if they have to reimburse it, it's considered a uniform. So oh, that's interesting. That we, yeah. Uh, so, and the reason it's not a PPE is because it's not protecting the person who's wearing it. It's right. protecting everybody else. So if you're standing there and you're wearing a face mask <laughs> and nobody else is, they can all thank you and you need to leave because <laughs> you, you're doing them a favor, but nobody's helping you out. Right. Wow. So, and then in terms of like, uh, just so once you look at your workspace and know how you're going to bring the people back, then it's how do you keep the virus out of your? What do you what do you do? How do you best keep the the virus out of your workplace? And the very first thing is screen every single person who's walking into it, whether it's employees, visitors, customers. They all need to be, consider whether you're going to do temperature screens. I, I don't think temperatures, everyone knows temperature doesn't tell you whether you have the virus or not because right. asymptomatic people have the virus, but right. it will, you know, even if someone's just sick, you don't want them in your workplace. So temperature screening is not a bad idea. There's great technology I've seen where uh, people can it can be done remotely. You put this thing up on the wall and it takes people's temperature. And like Brenda, you could sit there and you could zoom in and you could watch as people put their face up to this thing and that you can see the number that comes up, like sitting at your desk. It's, wow. There's some great technology out there. So you don't have to make people interact with each other to do this. But then the second part of that is, is, is the actual question type screening and asking them, have you been exposed to anyone? Like, are you at home taking care of somebody who's, who is positive? Uh, or ha do you know that you've had some exposure to someone who's been positive? And if you're not considered an essential worker under the Critical Infrastructure Act, then employees who have been exposed to the virus, to the virus are still supposed to be staying out of work and isolating. Mm -hmm. But if you're part of the critical infrastructure, then those employees can continue working. So if you've been exposed and you're part of the critical infrastructure, you can keep working so long as you're taking, you, you must take their temperature, require them to, everybody's got to wear face masks, you've got to be sanitizing and social distancing. If you do those things, even if employees are exposed to the virus, they can continue working until they become symptomatic. So, but in terms of these screening questions, you ask, have you tested positive? Have you had any flu-like symptoms? And both that question and 
the temp doing the temperature screens, if employers record that information, if they record what the actual temperature is, or they record a yes to, do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? That becomes a medical record. Right. And under the OSHA regs, uh, a medical record, I didn't know this until the pandemic, even though I, I've been an OSHA lawyer for 18 years. Uh, medical records have to be maintained for 30 years after the employment relationship ends. Wow. Nobody wants that. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's That's a lot crazy. of us who, there's a lot of us who are tenured HR pros that, boy, we're not, we're not fans of the whole taking of the temperature and because it, we, we recognize that it is a medical diagnosis. You know, we've been around long enough that we know this. We know that it needs to be, the records need to be contained in a certain manner. Um, we know they need to be stored and it really kept exclusive. They're not part of the employee's personnel record. And, and then of course, a lot of people start screaming that it's HIPAA, but HIPAA is a little bit, HIPAA is a little bit different beast. You have to be a qualified business in order to maintain it. But, but I mean, really you treat medical records, you treat that kind of information as it's strictly highly confidential and, you know, you should be fine. But um, yeah, it's just, Boy, some of us, I, I still haven't bought into the whole, I still am not comfortable with a business taking temperatures and then what do they do with that information? It's not that I'm uncomfortable with them taking the temperature. It's just now you've got data that lines you up for a big fall. Yeah. Well, so my, my suggestion has been from the beginning, uh, employers can do this without creating any problems for themselves. And the way they do it is uh, take everybody's temperature, but don't record anything. Mm. And at the end of the day, have somebody, whoever's been present the whole day, the person taking the temperature, the person who's been standing at the door, whatever, have somebody certify that everybody who's entered this workplace has gone through this screening and only entered if they passed. That's it. Just create yourself a couple sentences thing that somebody signs at the end of every day and that's the only record you need to maintain and if somebody uh, has a high temperature for instance and has to be turned away you have that employee call HR and they can start working out what needs to happen in terms of leave or getting them to a doctor what would you so what would same, you go ahead sorry the same is true. The same is true for that. Those screening questions. If you just ask the simple question, "Do you ex do you have a heightened risk of exposing others to the virus?" and then you list all the things that might create a heightened risk. So, have you had a fever? Have you coughed? Do you have shortened breath? Have you traveled internationally? Have you been exposed to people? If any of these conditions, you need any of these conditions, you must answer yes, that you pose a heightened risk. And they can even mark that on a sheet of paper and sign it, and it is not a medical record because right. you don't know which answer they were answering yes to. So it's only when employers create this document that says, do you have a cough, yes or no? The moment they say yes on that form, it's a medical record because you're identifying a, a condition that the employee has at that moment. So there's a way around it, and I highly suggest employee, employers take it and avoid the medical record. So here's a question for you. What, 
So if you've got an employer, so let's say if they take your they take your workaround idea, right? <clears throat> and they look at their systems and because of their setup, they don't really have either the confidence that that process will be consistently maintained or quite frankly, they don't maintain it because of, you know, a wide variety of reasons. What is a person's best action? I mean, what's a company's best action after that? It's just like anything employers do. Uh, if you don't uniformly enforce rules, you're going to open yourself up to liability. For liability. So yeah. whether it's, yeah, it's whether you, regardless of whether this is a situation where it's you've, you've created a rule as to when you'll discipline people or you've created a rule as to how you're going to go about laying people off and then you deviate from it, you're opening yourself up to liability. So if you create a rule on how you're going to keep your workplace safe, because that's what this is all about, how are you going to keep your workplace safe and you deviate from those rules, you're opening yourself up to liability. Yeah, I was thinking more along the lines of if they can't guarantee it, <clears throat> how much of a calculated risk are they taking by not actually doing the screening upon returning? Well, there's a lot of states and localities that mandate some level. So, so if you are an employer in one location, you just need to check your, yeah. what, what you're subject to. But if you're an employer who's in multiple jurisdictions trying to create a system that's a, it's a patchwork system of what you're going to do at different locations. Yeah. I think is even worse for employers. Yeah. It, it, I mean, one, create one system and uniformly put it across your, your business. I know. It's like you get an answer for one thing, but it generates another problem at the same time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and <laughs> geez, today, so much worse. I know, that might be great for marketing, but it doesn't really run very well in HR. <laughs> well, it's, and it certainly is doing employers no favor. And most, even government entities are acknowledging like what a yeah. problem this is for employers. I mean, it's uh, the speed at which the advice, it's not even the advice, the rules and the regulations are changing. I mean... I look like an idiot so many times. I tell a, a client, no, no, the rule says this. And I, I'm on the phone and I pull it up on the internet and I'm like, where is that? It's it was there changed. two days ago. Yeah, and I know. they've taken it away. I have, I have, on certain things, I started taking screenshots of things when I give advice that this wow. is what it's based on. And I swear, there have been numerous instances where I've had to pull that up and say, look, it really said that on the day I gave you this advice. <laughs> oh it's, my it's crazy God. how it fast is. this is changing. It is. I remember in the beginning when all this came out, <clears throat> you know, I had, I got contracted to, to do quite a few webinars in the very beginning, in like two months, I delivered like 30 webinars. It was crazy. And um, wow. yeah, it was, I was exhausted. <laughs> And um, mm -hmm. uh, while it was going on, so I had like a two week lag between two of them, two very big critical ones where we had significant numbers. 
and I was all like happy and proud about myself. I'm like, Oh, I got in front of the health of, you know, the health department and, you know, I'm talking to test administrators and this is great. I got all the inside. And it's just like, like in a week I was that information, although it was really good, it wasn't as, you know, groundbreaking anymore. It was more like, yep. Okay. <laughs> I was like, man, don't change it before I have this webinar. I mean, I kind of got to the point where it's like, guys, I'm not giving you my slides until like an hour before because it, it was because <laughs> everything changed so quickly, you know? So, yeah, I can tell you, you know, it's really interesting that it, um, we didn't do it on nearly as many things as we could or should have in Littler, but there are a number of topics where we had some, we have this like army of lawyers who don't really practice, but they, they are in the background just keeping the rest of us informed and up to date. And we had them start creating timelines of what was happening because as you're saying, what you're saying is if you think about where that's going to take us in a couple few months or a year from now, yeah. it, none of us are going to remember exactly how excruciating and new things were at the beginning because even today there's so many things that we really racked our brains about how to deal with at the beginning and they're beyond second nature at this point like we're like are you kidding doesn't everybody know that two months ago nobody nobody knew it and yeah. and people don't remember that and when when uh, we're in litigation you know, you're going to be sitting in front of juries in a year or more from now having to defend what the employer did in, in the context of all that craziness, and no one remembers the craziness. Yeah. Some so of we us documented. Will never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I know, it's I PSP. won't. <laughs> <P> <laughs> you're like, touche. Yeah. <laughs> Some yeah. of us will never, ever forget it. Some people are going to have grandkids and they're like, why are you wearing a mask? And then some of them are going to be like, why aren't you wearing a mask? Oh my gosh. It is well, crazy. yeah. It's I mean, my nieces and, nephew, my nieces and nephews, uh, I can't remember how this came about, but they were talking about how significant this was and somebody mentioned 9-11. And, mm -hmm. you know, and they just don't have a concept of that either. So, right, you're going to have, you will, yeah. you, you will have new generations who don't understand what, what life was before this, and we've already got generations who don't understand what life was before that. Yeah, until you actually experience something for yourself, then you understand the gravity of, uh, potentially, of something else. I know you know, with the restriction of not being able to go anywhere, <clears throat> I had a conversation with somebody. I said, can you imagine what this would have been like during World War II when you couldn't come out of your basement, you know, because the streets weren't even safe, you know, buildings are on fire and things are collapsing. And I can't even imagine what that feels like, <clears throat> but I do know what it feels like to not have access like I'm used to, you know. Right. So it's, it's, yes, I remember, I, I remember a, a webinar a month or so ago that where I started it with, it was like one month after Italy had shut down. And I started it by saying, you know, 
I remember just a month ago when the announcement that Italy was shutting down, and my thought was, well, thank goodness I'm in America because that'll never happen. Like, how does the how does the whole country just shut down? <laughs> yeah, I know. It was like, here, hold my beer. Nope. <laughs> Let me show you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here, this is how you do it. <laughs> yeah. So. And not just the country, the entire world. I mean, that that was not expected three or four weeks before it happened. No, and you know. Um, we were talking about litigation earlier on, I, you know, with, even with all of the resources that I tap into to, to stay up to date, I still haven't been able to, I haven't really seen anything on litigation. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, from your viewpoint, because you are in the trenches when it comes to that, you, you're able to forecast what may or may not come down the pike in that regard. So it's really interesting to hear that perspective. We just, we just haven't, you know, that information hasn't leached out just yet, probably because some courts are still closed and, you know, it's just, it's, it's a matter of time. It's definitely coming. So what do you see happening next with all the influx of information that you have? What, what can you, if you were to look into a, a like a crystal ball, what would, what do you, what do you see happening for us next? Yep, so I think the, the next new normal is that businesses will reopen, and I hope with the protests and such, we're not going to see huge infection rates. I don't understand medical side and viral stuff enough to know how it is all these people can be on top of each other with no masks, and we don't have an increase in infection rates, but so far, we really haven't seen much of a spike like that. So if that continues, um, we're employers, these numbers that came in from this survey, employers are definitely going to be putting these plans in place to where when employees and even customers are entering spaces that you're going to be wearing face masks, you're going to be asked screening questions, and you're probably going to have your temperature taken, uh, at least until uh, a virus, uh, I mean, a uh, vaccination is, is created mm -hmm. uh, because they said to really get that herd mentality to where the spread wouldn't be substantial because so many people have already had it. it you have to reach like 60 or 70 percent and when I don't think there's any projection that's getting us there anytime quickly. So right. these, these, these measures are in place but I do think that eventually as many people that are throwing as much money at a vaccine, and I know a lot of people are anti-vaccine and so many people still won't take it, but if a vaccine comes out, we will see our world return to something that we considered normal a few months ago, something a little more like it was. But until then, uh, you're gonna, this, this whole idea of the open space concepts I mean, that, that's a disaster because now what do you do with that? Uh, all these employers are going to have to redo all of that space. You can't have all this collaborative space. Uh, so we're just going to be interacting in an entirely new way. And uh, I think one of the great things that comes out of this is that employers who were so resistant to telework have absolutely come around to understanding that telework uh, is a viable option for their business. 
Mm-hmm. And you're going to see so many more people able to telework, whether they want to or whether they're forced to. So I think right. we're going to see less commercial space going forward. All of the commercial builders and brokers believe that uh, there's going to be a, a continued reduction in the amount of commercial space needed as a result of this. And those are some big changes that you can see. In terms of litigation, a couple of weeks ago when I looked, I think there were about 50 COVID-related um, cases that had been filed. Uh, and so there's certainly more at this point. But specifically in the wage and hour realm, uh, we haven't started seeing a lot of this, but some of the big, uh, the big items to be looking for is I've already mentioned like the exemptions um, and the duties tests for outside salespeople, but also like executives. If you, if you furloughed the people that you were supervising, you don't have the exemption anymore. If you cut your hours back below 40 full-time, you have to supervise full-time employees. And if they work 35 hours, there's not, um, there's not an exception there for that. So there's going to be some, uh, I think, a lot of exemption wage and hour litigation that comes out of this. The amount of off-the-clock work based on remote work mm-hmm. is going to be probably crazy because how do you control all these people who are not used to having their employees work remotely? All of a sudden, you had all these people working at home. And I can tell you, I've seen a lot of non-exempt people sending emails on the weekends and late at night. And all of those hours are compensable, and you didn't. Employers didn't have time to get the framework in place to control that nearly enough, and so there's an awful lot of off-the-clock work outside the normal hours that occurred with people working at home that employers have not paid for, and all of that uh, is compensable time. Uh, overtime, the, the way that they calculated overtime is going to probably be a big problem. So you saw a lot of people who were continuing to work and employers, for instance, would provide incentive type bonuses, but they potentially did not include them correctly in the regular rate. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them just tried to slap bonuses on top of what the regular pay was, but they didn't think about it enough to know how to, to calculate that correctly for, for overtime rates. So I think a lot of employers are going to and should be going back and making sure what they did during the pandemic um, is uh, they can clean that up now before a lawyer or the DOL comes along. Uh, and even the return to work bonuses, which have already happened and I think might continue happening, particularly with workers who are on unemployment and making so much money off of that at the moment. And I mean, why are they going to come back to a 15 or 18 hour dollar an hour job when they're making 22 bucks or more on unemployment? Yeah. Well, so that's a, that's a conversation I've had a lot with employers is like, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, and, it's like, look, if you, if you, if you, te- if you start doing a recall and your employees are saying, no, 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 I'm not ready to come back to work or I'm nervous or I'm afraid. And you say, oh, okay. And you 
you know, you don't report that you've done a recall, then you're contributing to them. You know, that's an unlawful activity to be able to be collecting unemployment when you've, I mean, they're no longer eligible, right? So it gets really, it gets really dodgy unless you, I think, unless the game has changed, then, you know, if you do a voluntary recall, then that, that kind of adjusts it just a little bit, but it gets, it's complicated. Well, and there's a lot of state unemployment websites that I've, I've seen now that even on the very first page, it basically is telling employers that they have an obligation. I don't mm-hmm. think this is necessarily true, but if they say employers have an obligation to tell the, the State Department of Labor if they've made an offer to an employee yep. and the yep. employee rejected it so that they can stop the unemployment benefits. Yep. Now, I don't know of any regulation that requires that of employers. Like employers have to respond initially, uh, but there's nothing that says after the fact that you have to keep the DOL informed. But the DOL, the state DOL's position in many states is that they they think employers should and you know, I don't know what's gonna happen if they if they don't, but at the end of the day, employers really should because they're co- the employees are committing fraud who yep. who are doing that, and exactly. it's running up the end. This is not going to affect that particular employees or employers' unemployment rate because they've said unemployment during this period is not going to factor in. Right. But it's certainly you know affecting the unemployment in general and. And so we've had this uh, discussion with a lot of employers as to how, what, what do you do with all these employees who are refusing to return to work or the ones who just say, I'm, I'm afraid to return to work. I don't think it's safe. So the, the discussion is employers need to ensure that they have put all, all the things at a minimum that we've already, we talked about earlier in place that ensures that they have a safe workplace and then communicate that to the um, to the employees, right? That they have that they have done everything that they could to create a work a safe workplace. And then if the employee continues to say they are afraid, the employer needs to engage with them to determine why they feel that they're afraid. And if it's just unjustified you know, the DOL within these FAQs that they issued specifically say, uh, there's no question about it, that if that there is no right for an employee not to return to work out of fear. So they, they're not entitled to unemployment and they're not entitled to have their job retained if that's their only reason. But you do, the employers need to engage because the in, they might learn that the employee has an underlying medical condition or something else that's going to qualify as a disability, and you've got to go through the, the interactive process to determine whether uh, you have an obligation to accommodate that person, and that's what that fear is from. So don't act, don't act rashly. <laughs> <laughs> Breathe. <laughs> Uh, always a good, always a good idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> through the nose, out through the mouth. Well, it's been great mm-hmm. having you on. Thank you for all of this really valuable insight because it'll change next week. <laughs> but, 
it will. It's been great. I love it. So if people wanted to reach if out and find can you, just, what's that? People can just tune in. People can just keep tuning into you and they'll get the update. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Where, where, so if people wanted to reach out to you, where can they, where can they find you at? Yeah, so you can just go to littler.com, which is L-I-T-T-L-E-R.com. And if you just type in my first name, it's Dane, like the dog, Great Dane, <laughs> I will pop up. That's probably the easiest. I can, um, and if there's something on the podcast that they can identify my name, my email is Stephenson at littler.com and phone number is 404 964 9733. But that website will give you, uh, the, the other thing is, is the littler.com website is we hands down have more coronavirus material than anybody. And it's all there publicly for free. We've got tons of webinars that you can click on and watch uh, at no cost, but there's articles and materials. Uh, there's also an excellent resource is we have multiple um, charts that show like all the different orders throughout the states mm -hmm. and the cities uh, where you can just click on a state and a city and, and, and find what uh, back to work rules are applying and, and the return to work orders that are out there. Okay. We have one that, that deals with uh, face masks. So like you can figure out in Texas and Dallas, do they require face masks or do they only recommend it as opposed to LA? Um, you know, we, we track all those different things that are COVID related that employers are having to deal with. So we're like you, we are here to help. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it very much. It was uh, fantastic having my first podcast with you. <laughs> oh, cool. That's great. Thanks. beginning of this month, I launched the new HR coaching program, which is really doing well. I've gotten a lot of, a lot of questions about it, a lot of inquiries. And uh, next month, it's going to actually, I'm going to sweeten the pot just a little bit, but um, we'll get that information out in July. Uh, the HR co coaching program actually helps participants with their specific HR questions and provides really that safe place for HR pros to talk about their individual challenges. And many of them are in an HR department of one, just like a lot of my listeners are. Um, we've been focusing in on three solutions from our past sessions, in addition to having kind of an open forum, asking, you know, individuals specific questions as well. And we're focusing on three things. <clears throat> Matter of fact, I had a conference call today with uh, one of the individuals that's in the coaching program, and she has taken advantage of this very first solution that we put out, and she's absolutely loving it. And it was hilarious because she's telling me, she's like, I didn't realize I had so many shiny squirrel moments in a day until I got disciplined on this. So that was fantastic. So one of the first three of the three things that we are really digging into is one is not having enough time to do everything that they want to do. And this is a, a solution that I put together. It's totally free. Anybody can, anybody can grab this if they want. It's called the HR Task Planner for Crazy Busy HR Pros. There's also a free video that comes with the download. 
and it's there for you. And basically what it does is it takes time management out of the equation and helps the user manage the workload. Mainly because in HR, we don't have the ability to schedule anything. I mean, yes, we schedule meetings and, and stuff like that, but we come in and if we think that we're going to have a list of things that we're going to get done and we're constantly thrown different interruptions, people come in and they have you know, questions with their paycheck. They've got questions about their benefits. You know, they've got like an employee concern or they're looking for specific information. They want to know how much PTO they have left. All of those things come at us and we can't, we can't plan for those, right? We just have to be ready to address them. And, and that's, that's fine. That's what we do. Um, but what having this does is that it also allows the freedom not only to identify what is the most important thing that needs to get done, when can you do it in your week, but it also allows the flexibility that if your day blows up, kind of like mine did early this morning, um, you can shift things to the right. In other words, you can just erase and shuffle what needs to be done. So you can actually, it's a bird's eye view of your week and it, it makes it really convenient. Um, and so this is available for you guys at the bestpractices.work down. There's like I said, there's a downloadable link. Go ahead and, and jump on that. There is a free tutorial. You're welcome to go ahead and watch the video and it'll kind of help explain how to work it. The second thing that we've been working on is helping people understand what exactly they need to do to stay compliant. Um, it, there, there are things that people are discovering left and right. Like I didn't even know that that was a thing. And what I've introduced is the best HR planner on the planet. And this allows the end user to actually, there's a list of all the basic employment laws that companies have to follow based off of the size of their workforce, provides a schedule of compliance deadlines. Um, it includes a 12 month, ca uh, monthly calendar so that whoever's using it can actually kind of mark important dates as you're working through and building your strategy for the year. Um, it provides a year end checklist, the things that you need to do to start getting ready. And there's a section of active links to help you get real time information on all of the employment laws. Also, um, I hosted some webinars in the next gen women in HR Facebook group on how to use this tool and to build the strategy. We are, we've got a planning session this week. Um, and we also have an upcoming Q3 planning session because Q3 is a huge, huge, huge quarter for every single year. Everybody thinks maybe Q1, it's actually Q3 because there's a lot of things that are coming down. So that includes, Q3 includes the government when they actually wrap up their fiscal year. Um, it's rolling into year end. And you know what, if you just don't have a solid plan going into Q3, man, you're just gonna be scrambling. So you can find this one over at the bestpractices.work website, click on the shop link. You can go ahead and download the digital copy. And what's really cool is that you can bind it and you can make it into a book. Um, you know, if you're like me, you like to have things in writing, go ahead and highlight it, make your notes, do your annotation. And there's actually a notes section in the back of it as well. And then finally, over in the HR University, this is where we're actually hosting the HR coaching program. And uh, where we, part of the coaching program includes this monthly roundtable where, again, you can ask the questions, you can hear what other HR pros are talking about or trying to figure out and get support. It's not just coming from me, it's coming from other participants. So that's the beauty of this is that we're all having a seat at the table and everybody is contributing. So not everybody walks the same path in this, in, you know, HR. I've got a wide combination between aerospace, HCM, and retail. Uh, and, and even when I was with human capital management, I got exposed to major 
major industries. So in a few minor ones, but that was really neat is because I've got a chance to see a lot of things done a lot of different ways. Um, and it allows with other people's experiences, like I haven't done a lot of anything in food, you know, that's not an area that I have experience in, but we have somebody in the group who has. And so, uh, that person, he tends to contribute quite a bit, which is really awesome. So there's also as part of the HR coaching program in, in the HR university, um, there is a free course that you can take called selling HR to your boss and how to improve your yes factor by 10 X. So you are welcome to jump in and take advantage of all that. Email me your HR questions. I love HR questions. And you can submit your questions on the bestpractices.work website by clicking on the podcast link from the menu. And down towards the bottom of the podcast page is a submission form for you to go ahead and post your question, which may be read and answered on an upcoming episode. Now this, the last week I did a question based from an employee and I got another one because I think it's good. I think there's a good questions to see what people are looking for, what they're, what kind of questions your employees are asking. And, you know, with the current, with the current state of the nation, this one is exceptionally apropos. And I want to make sure that we talk about this today. So the question reads, after being falsely reported to HR for making a racist comment, I have been handed a suspension and told that the investigation is underway. Meanwhile, I may not talk to any of my colleagues. What can I do? So this question doesn't surprise me, not because of, you know, what happened. The question, what can I do? Um, this person really probably has never gone through something like this before. It, it, you know, they, they, they wouldn't necessarily say they've been suspended. They would probably put on what is more appropriate, considered an administrative leave. And in doing that, what the effort is, is to actually control the environment. So if something was said, uh, the, the employer has the obligation to go in and investigate it. They have to, you know, do Q&A with anybody who may be involved. And of course, we don't know the details of this. But here's what happens. Here's what is happening right now in the nation. And with everything that's going on with the tensions of coronavirus, with the tensions of, you know, what is happening with uh, the more violent protests, the rioting, We've got shootings all over the country. I mean, Chicago, holy cow. I mean, 101 people over the weekend involved in, you know, getting shot, dead. It's crazy, right? So there's a, yeah, we're, we're, (laughs) we're not in a good spot. But as this individual who originally posted this on the job, on the board that I pulled it from, His comment is, after being falsely reported to HR for making racial comments. That's what, that's what the the respondent that I'm about ready to read has focused in on, okay? And it's a trigger. It has triggered this individual. And the response is, being falsely reported to HR for making racist comments is a very strong accusation. So he's not, I want to put some clarification. Whoever posted the original question is conveying their side of the story. The person receiving it is responding as to how that individual sees the world, sees the world. Being falsely reported to HR for making racist comments is a strong accusation. Individual who read this and responded to it immediately wrapped around the falsely reported piece. Okay. And 
they continue that while your company might have a policy of suspension, while the investigation is underway, you could point out that the law requires that they have evidence before they can defame you. Nobody's defaming anybody. This is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. And this is the kind of stuff that employees are getting feedback on, on public Q&A boards. And that's where this question actually came from. Okay. First off, we're not talking about laws about being defamed. We haven't, no, the employer hasn't confirmed anything at this point in time. Now we don't know the details, right? So this person is, is posting this while they're currently out on administrative leave. Everything's under investigation. No accusations have been made directly to the employee by the employer. So there's a lot of sensitivity, okay? And it continues. And for that reason, you intend to press charges for defamation of character unless they remove the suspension pending them finding actual evidence. Well, there, there's no such thing as pressing charges for defamation. Again, it is sensitive. Now, if somebody was in fact accused of saying something racist and they did in fact say something racist and it was verified and the only way that can happen at this point is through multiple witnesses then you know what the employer can do a couple things number one they can coach and correct depending upon how egregious the situation is they can consider separation but they would consider separation for inappropriate behavior. That would probably be the best bet, inappropriate behavior. So it's very likely that something was taken out of context and now there's an investigation. It's very likely somebody has said something. We don't know. But I wanted to really bring out in this question what happens when employees put their questions out to the public, to individuals who don't know the circumstances they don't know the situation and what happens is that it feeds a narrative and it feeds doubt and ambiguity and fear and it ramps people up right it makes people upset and frustrated if you've done something wrong and you don't know what to do your best point of contact to ask that question believe it or not is the HR team and, and HR really needs to, needs to take a strong stand on this, is that, listen, we're just here, we're only, all we're doing is taking you out of the day to figure out exactly what's going on. We don't know. Now, this individual obviously is going to be upset. Anybody would be upset if they were accused of doing something that they didn't do or they didn't think that they did or they did and didn't realize that it created problems, okay? That's a normal human response. You just gotta work through that. But during the course of the investigation, at some point you gotta bring that employee back into the loop and you have to ask that individual, okay, so help me understand what's going on. Now, I will also tell you that in my experience that when people are scared, there's usually a little bit of fire behind the smoke, okay? If you have somebody who's immediately putting out into the world, I've been falsely accused of reporting to HR for making a racist comment. I've been handed a suspension and told that the investigation is underway. Meanwhile, I'm not able to talk to any of my colleagues. What can I do? Your HR team should have already told you that. There is nothing for you to do. You just got to let this play out. 
and you don't know what's being said as an employee. You're literally standing beside yourself because you don't know what's been said. You don't know how this has been brought in. You don't know how you're being represented because all you know is that there's an investigation. So my point being is that it's not about what whether it's racist or not. It's not about whether the employee was right or wrong. It's not about whether the reporting employee is right or wrong. What I'm about ready to say is all about you guys have to do a really good job in today's environment to manage the environment. In today's world, you have to do a good job, a thorough job of managing the environment. That means that you just can't say one thing once. You have to reassure the individual. You have to make sure that you're treating people like they feel like they're a human being and treat them like a human being on top of it. Some of the most difficult investigations I have ever conducted have actually come out with disciplinary action, with the person being disciplined, actually respecting how we went about doing it, how I went about conducting uh, the investigation because of how they were treated. They were kept into the loop. If I said that I was going to call somebody on this day, by this time, I made sure that I did it. If I said I was going to do something, I made sure I followed through. If it turned out that the investigation had to take on another day, then I called and I let the employee know, here's what's going on. I, I've got a couple more questions that I need to ask. I'm going to go ahead and extend it one more day. You're going to stay at home, but tomorrow you and I are going to talk. Are you free at this time? Right? So you're, you want to be very conscientious about how you're controlling the situation and making sure that you're doing it with the best level of humanity whatsoever. And you know what? I've investigated uh, cases of discrimination. I've investigated um, when somebody has said something that has been completely inappropriate and I handled each and every single situation the same way. And even though the individual, some individuals were terminated, some individuals were written up, a lot of them were scared senseless. And some of them knew that it was just a load and knew that they were going to come at it fine. You just don't know how this is going to fly. So the more you treat people with respect, the more you treat individuals as human beings and you put the human back into human resource, you're going to get through it a lot better. But that takes a lot of effort and it takes communication to the individual who is um, in question on what's going on. So I love that. I thought it was a great thing. I want to make sure that we brought this out to you guys um, to talk through that. Um, if you have situations that are hot, heated, and intense, um, you are welcome to jump on and connect with me on the website. Even if you want to do a quick 20-minute, you know, introductory call, I'm more than happy, you know, to listen and maybe we might be able to come up with a strategy for you guys. So happy to do that. Um, over in the next gen women in HR community, we are continuing to have real conversations in real time with real people. Uh, they are awesome. They are exciting. And there's some fun changes that are actually coming down over the next several months in the community itself. So it's an awesome group of women and men, and we are growing strong and fast. We're at 160 members, which is awesome. We just brought a couple people in over the weekend, 
and uh, I'm looking forward to getting to know them as well. So I can speak for the group and share that we'd all love to have you guys join us and get in on the conversation. After all, that's what we really need right now and is to stop absorbing and start talking to one another. So the Next Gen Women in HR Facebook group is that awesome place to start. And in the Next Gen Women HR member resources site, um, and we've expanded it now, um, and it now includes part of that uh, monthly coaching program. So the monthly coaching program includes the member resource site, and it includes the uh, monthly HR roundtable. It's about a 90-minute session. And I mentioned this earlier in the, in the episode, and it is a great place to allow uh, for an individual to grow and uh, get strong and build up that knowledge and really just like talk to another person that's in their playground. <laughs> so, you know, so keep listening, sign up for updates and information that I'm going to be sending out over the next few weeks. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can go ahead and find me on Instagram and Facebook at best practices in HR, where I give, you know, kind of general updates over on Instagram. I do have another, um, another handle and it is Brenda, the HR lady, where I share more about what I'm up to individually. And if you'd like to connect with me on a professional level, you can certainly find me over on LinkedIn and it's at Brenda. My last name is spelled N-E-C-K, like the thing you want to choke. V is in Victor, A-T-A-L. Over on YouTube, I've been gradually building a library of videos and you can find me again using my name over there. But I also co-host another show that is called The Real HR Show with the evil HR lady herself, Suzanne Lucas. And unfortunately today, Mercury, who is spinning around the sun, decided to give us a little bit of a problem and we had some technical difficulty. It's been like that all day long. So it's been driving me nuts. But lastly, you can jump on the website at bestpractices.work where you can read up on the news updates that I called out earlier in today's episode. This is actually something new that I've decided to do and decided to add. So simply visit bestpractices.work, click on the podcast link, and then you can get this week's articles as well. Also, while you're there, click connect at the top of the page and get my best practices delivered directly to your inbox. So folks, thank you again for joining me. I am really excited about uh, what's coming down the pike in July. We've got incredible guests coming up. Um, Tom Shea, U.S. Navy SEAL Tom Shea is joining us. He's got a new book release absolutely epic book loved it don't miss that and uh some other really great topics so i will uh i look forward to talking to you guys next week have a good one